So the first problem with emails is they're too long. A friend of mine has in his email signature that he's trying not to make any email longer than five lines. So less is more, less is more. What we're really trying to do is make one point via email. Let me ask you this. If you were playing chess via email, would you put your next seven moves in the same email? Uh, no. You want to make a move, you want to see what kind of effect it has, then you want to move after that. So let's not do seven moves in a single email. Less is more. Let's try to land one point. All right, here's our guidance after less is more. Set it up, land it, finish positively. Now this is not the sandwich advice. The sandwich is nonsense, which is a negative sandwiched by positives. You know that nonsense, which basically starts out with, hey, I love you. Hey, you stink. Hey, I love you. All right, so uh, that's better than just, hey, you stink, but let's, let's do it more intelligently. Now on the less is more issue also, don't put all your negotiation guidance in the same email. I once gave a lot of great negotiation advice, which the gentleman I was coaching took all of it and put all of it in the same email. It was crazy. Taught him to ask the no-oriented question, have you given up on this project? Which is a great standalone one-line email or one-line text. But what he did was ask, have you given up on this project? Because I haven't was his next line. So we don't put multiple tactics making multiple points in the same email. So set it up. If you got bad news in the email, warn them it's coming. Don't start out with, hey, I love you and you stink. The short version of that would be, I got something that you're not going to want to hear. You stink. At least you warned them that the bad news was coming. You give people a chance to brace themselves for bad news and then you deliver it. Don't warn them 5,000 times because they're going to want to read what's coming, but warn them that the bad news is coming. Then land the bad news. Soften the bad news when you land it. Use I'm sorry and I'm afraid sprinkled liberally throughout before the negative statements or the potentially perceived negative statements are made, not after. It's, I'm sorry, you stink, instead of, you stink, I'm sorry. There's a big difference between those two. You've warned them that more bad news is coming on. Let people brace themselves before you hit them with the bad news. Here's another tip on emails. Do emails have tone? Remember, the tone that it's gonna be read in is not the tone that was in your head when you wrote it. You write an email with this wonderful, loving, soft, nice, positive, upbeat, nurturing tone, and it's not gonna be read that way. It's probably gonna be read in at best a cold and distant tone, and potentially at worst as a harsh tone. I once sent an email where somebody asked me a question, the answer was no, and I wrote no, because I heard in my head that I was gonna say it soft and gentle like that. Will you send a one line, one word email, no, when you mean no. The other side's gonna hear, no! Here's some more great advice on how to think about tone in an email. Uh, do emails have tone? They can, they got a no, we got some yeses. And we got to always do, yeah, that's more, we got a maybe over here, right? I think you were just trying to be funny. <laughs>
Emails, emails always have a tone. And they always take on the tone of the mood that the reader is in at the time. Which as a negotiator, you have no control over. The fact that they got up that morning, their kid got in trouble, they had to give their kid a spanking, and then their wife yelled at them, and then they got into an argument with their boss. Then they sat down at the computer and read your email, and they're really off in that moment. You had no control over that. And so... <clears throat> When it comes to email, it's not so much that these can't be used, but we like to drop in what we refer to as email softeners, which simply put are just I'm sorry's and I'm afraid's. And then our emails have always got to be short. You know, the other thing, and that's why, that's why I said it's tricky, because number one, email's got to be short, and sometimes your accusations are that there's 17 items. You might not necessarily want to list all 17 in the email, but you might want to use the email to drive them to the table so you can lay them out verbally. And then the second thing, as I mentioned earlier, is the tone. And the way you combat that is when I'm sorry, I'm afraid. No matter what mood you're in, I'm sorry pretty much always reads as I'm sorry. And so I'm sorry I have to lay this at your feet. I'm afraid if this doesn't get solved, it's going to cause this problem. You probably think this is some sort of a money grab. You know, in an order like that. But you definitely want to drop in your I'm sorry, I'm afraid. I think who is um, getting more? Who wrote the, I can't think of the author. The Stuart Diamond, yes. Stuart Diamond, uh, Wharton professor, taught negotiation there for a long time. He's got a great podcast on, read, on, on sending emails. And he says, write them out and then read them back to yourself out loud in the worst possible voice you could imagine. And he says, don't be one of these people that's like, I can hear the voice in my head. I can just read the words. No, 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 no. Read it out loud because the process of hearing the words come out of your mouth and back into your ears is very important. And then rewrite your email. Now, after you've laid the bad news out, in positively, tell the truth positively. Look, the reality is the reason why you're sending that email in the first place is because you want to work things out positively. That can be how you finish the email. You can say, the reason I sent this email in the first place is because we want to work things out positively. Finish positively. Tell the truth. You wouldn't be sending that email if you didn't want to work things out positively, if you didn't want to come to a collaborative agreement, if you didn't want a great long-term relationship. Many people start emails with, hey, how are you? We think the world of you. We'd love for everything to work out well. And then they give you the bad news. If you don't know what to say at the end, pretty good chance that whatever you said at the very beginning to open it positively could be taken and put at the end. So worst case scenario, whatever you wrote to start that email, copy it, cut it, and put it at the end. Less is more. Set it up. Land it in positively. The last impression is the lasting impression should be your guideline for all your communications, verbal and email. The last impression seeds the next impression. It is what will ring in their ears when they go back over and remember what was communicated in that email. Dennis, what do you got? What's a, what's, what's a law of negotiation gravity that governs, governs endings of communications? Always leave them in a better place and um, make them feel good. 
that, you know, that's, uh, I, I like that. You said it better than I would have. I would have said the last impression is the lasting impression. Therefore, you should always leave them in a better place and make them feel good. What, what should you do based on that? So nice. Yeah. Good, good move. Always. And, and what, what's a hack for that? Um, I'll always be positive. That's good. I like that too. You know, that's a hard thing to do. I will tell you personally, my hack for that is I find myself frequently in the dialogue of my head saying, Hey, it's good to hear, see you at the beginning. You know, typically what I'm going to end up wanting to say at the beginning to grease the skids for the conversation is exactly what I should be saying at the end in my thought pattern. And and that is often how I will do it. I'll find myself writing an email and what I say at the beginning, I'll, I'll just cut and paste and put it at the end. So, but uh, always be positive. It's a good one. Alan, Alan, you got a hand brother. Yeah. Hey, I, I used, I had to use this this week. Uh, I've been trying to get into my new office in Phoenix and I can't get the keys. I can't get the lease. They're, their system is down, you know, COVID, whatever. So I sent them the five sentence email and got the keys that day. The homework. Nice. Yeah. What was what was well done. All right. So walk us through. What would what, you send? So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna huff and puff and blow your house down if I don't get my keys. Yeah, that's what I was doing. Not not really, but so I just wrote it, just said, Hello, Brooke. I admit it. I am high maintenance. When can we move into the office? I'm sorry to be such a fuss. I know you're worried about getting the paperwork done prior so you don't get reprimanded. I hope your week is going well so far. Have a great day. Wow. Wow. See, and that, and, and that last line, I mean, that my initial instinct would be, I would open the email with, I hope your week is going well so far. And you just take it and put it at the end. Nice, nice yes. and concise. And so the the reason we in the class last week we you talked about you even get a sniff of what the problem is. Well, I the property uh, manager lady I'm dealing with two people. She said, "Well, Brooke's a little concerned about getting the paperwork done before you move in." So I already knew that, and so that's why I put that line in there. I know you're worried about getting the paperwork, and prior not so you don't get reprimanded. Nice. Dude, you're, you're, Brand, he's hovering. He's, he's in high easily now, huh? That guy's rock and roll. Nice job by Alan. There's, there, there are so many things about that that I like. And, and specifically to your point, that last line, there was something about the situation that was negative for your counterpart that you knew to be fact. And you didn't try to shy away with it from it by like, you're probably nervous about getting reprimanded. No, I know, I know you're nervous, right? This is your, your instincts were to skip over. You might think you probably think I would imagine you might even, and went right in for the juggler. I know this is a problem for you. And I, I don't think, I don't know if you could have phrased that particular sentence any better than you did. And so really, really, really excited about that. I know I'm high maintenance, right? Like that's, that's fantastic stuff. And then the last piece I'll add in, 
and I may have made reference to this last week. Um, and this is this is not a, a, a detriment to you, Alan. I think that's all great, but just kind of an added piece for the group. Everything we do in negotiation is predicated on not sounding like the last jerk that they spoke to. That's one of the biggest reasons we use a tactical empathy approach because they're being dealt with differently than they probably ever have been before. So that automatically gives us a leg up. So in the spirit of that, in the sign off, the signature portion of your email, expand beyond sincerely or best regards, right? Experiment with it. I like to use the word humbly a lot, especially when I know I'm, I'm asking somebody for something that they got to probably bend over backwards to give me. I use humbly um, instead of like best regards. I'll put the very best regards. Like I just, you know, those little things that just make the email stand out just that much more. Um, and then based on the situation, that will sometimes dictate the end of my email. You know, it might simply be respectfully sometimes. Uh, the email might be somewhat of a joke, right? The guy that drives you nuts, Brandon. Right. It might, you know, it all depends on the situation. So feel free to play with the signature a little bit, too. It's just one 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 little two millimeter shift that makes you stand out that much more. Go ahead, Roger. What you got, bro? OK, Professor. Uh, so for me, I didn't I, I sent a LinkedIn message versus an email because the person I wanted to reach out to, I didn't have their their email address. Um, but so I'll just kind of I'll, I'll read it to you. So the context of it is. Uh, so I am on, uh, so I'm like a, the social media guy for a virtual community, like a Salesforce community event that we're putting together. And we're trying to put something together where it's a little bit more fun. So we're trying to get like a mixologist to come in and, you know, because who doesn't like to have a drink and those kinds of things. So I reached out to a guy that I know, he's an acquaintance uh, that works at Tito's Vodka um, here in Texas. Uh, so seeing if he can kind of like hook us up with a mixologist from Tito's. So the message goes, hey, Jerry, you may be incredibly busy right now, and you're probably wondering why I'm reaching out to you since we haven't seen each other in so long. I'm not sure if you know, but I'm on the volunteer staff that runs Texas Streaming. We obviously aren't going to have an in-person event this year, but we're really trying hard to put together a fun virtual event for the community in July. Would it be completely ridiculous to ask if Tito's could help us out by providing a mixologist for our social slash networking happy hour? Uh, then the following day, Jerry responds, hi, Roger, great to hear from you. I know I personally updated our sponsorship record with a checkbox for virtual events. So I will check with our event coordinator to see what, what that implies. Um, never mind the public form. Can you please email me, email me as much detail as you can to Jay Markham at Tio's Vodka, and I will get right on it. Um, then a couple other things. But uh, so, yeah, I followed up with the email, sent him that, and he told me he responded back to me said he'd forward on to their uh, events coordinator and, you know, well, and if there's anything here, if I have any further questions to reach out. Nice. Nice. And you got a quick response. Cool, man. I mean, that, that, that no warranted question pitching your ask at the end. That's yeah, like that. a great way. Nice, nice work. Brand, I, I can see the wheels turning. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, again, a lot of things I like that I like about that. I love, I mean, I imagine you got this exact response you're looking for. You can, you can reach out to him directly and he wants to field all that stuff himself. 
Um, there's the only critique that I have on this one, and it's and it's just simply because I I, I got a pet peeve for it because I had a mentor of mine that drilled it into my head. Um, one of the best ways to get out of the habit of dropping a butt into conversation is to be very specific about taking it out of your writing, right? If we're mentally working on eliminating butt when we write stuff, then that usually quickly translates to how we verbally communicate. And so in this context, for all intents and purposes, it's probably harmless. The reason I'm bringing it up is because it's a habit we all have where we want to drop butts into our writing and when we speak. And occasionally we inadvertently drop a butt in that's really detrimental to us. And it's a complete accident because it's just a habit. And the reality is, but is a filler word that doesn't need to take up space in the universe we occupy. And so I'm not sure if you know, I am the coordinator of the event, but is completely unnecessary there. And so that's the only critique that I have, right? And I think a lot of you have heard my, the mentor that told me, you never want to put your butt in somebody else's face, right? And that's always like just stuck in my mind. And so that's the only critique, but again, it's not really much of a critique because in this instance, I didn't, it didn't do any damage at all. And you got exactly what you were looking for. And it's still a great message. And I love the fact you did it on LinkedIn too. Add a little variety here. I dropped this in on a, on a social media medium here and it worked great. So nice job, man. Nice job. Thank you. I had yeah, to go back. I didn't even notice I put a button. Sorry. No, no, no problem, man. I just, my ears are sensitive to it. I'm, it's one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brandon, you like, you, you like saying that phrase. You know, anytime you get somebody catching a butt, you want to say, you want to say your phrase, never put your butt in somebody's face. That's, that's what it is. I'm trying to create the visualization with the metaphor. I, I get a kick out of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and a couple, couple more things about the way I like Roger handled with this, um, Eliminating our pet peeves. Like, so we hate the guy that we haven't heard from for two years. And he starts out with, hey, how are you? How the kids? Oh, by the way. You know, I heard somebody call that the oh, by the way. And you know that baby's coming. So first of all, you guys getting out of that because he that 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 guy, that guy, that gal that we haven't heard from 10 years got an ask. And they start with this flowery language which you know there's something coming. So you guys are giving yourself a competitive advantage by not doing that. Now, here's the other thing that I've found too. Personal observation. Ain't nothing wrong with it being 10, 20 years for the first time you reached out for somebody with an ask. That's gonna happen. If you're a busy, successful person, that's gonna happen. And I like the way Roger Roger handled this perfectly um, by deactivating that negative up front. And I find myself doing that all the time. I used to hate people I hadn't heard from from 10 years and they reach out for me with an ask. I'm like, yeah, I ain't heard. But now I'm like, look, this happens. And I will tell you in many cases when I do that, I start out an email. I'm just going to seem like another one of these jerks who you haven't heard from for 10 years. And the first time you hear from them, they got an ask. I got an ask. Boom, now we're off to the races. 
I mean, you guys are finding yourself in that position and it's okay because you're legitimate business people. And if you got an ask of somebody, if they collaborate with you, it's going to benefit them. So you're doing them a favor by understanding the human nature, amygdala reaction, deactivate and bringing them an opportunity to collaborate with you. You're going to have that over and over and over again. I love the way Roger handled it. And that's how you continue to distinguish yourself from the other people in the world that are, that are doing the old by the ways, how the kids, how the dogs, you know, Oh, by the way, keep yourself out of that. Oh, oh, by the way thing. Nice work, Roger. You guys are entitled to move the world forward with your success. You are going to find yourself in this position. This is how you navigate it and collaborate with people and move everybody forward. So I'm a big fan, but I wanted to ask you a question um, that I didn't see much of in, in uh, the classes. So because of the pandemic, a lot of the negotiations uh, for me and my business turned digital. And I came to the point where everyone was kind of asking me, I was trying to get them on the phone or the computer to practice those skills I learned in your class because I feel I'm so much better, you know, when they see my face. But everybody was kind of like, just email it to me. And I was like, oh, how do I do this? There's no late night DJ voice with nonverbal communications. Like, how do I do this digitally over email and still get the results that I want? Yeah, well, you got to treat your emails uh, like you're playing chess by email. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if you're playing chess, you wouldn't put the next seven chess moves in the same email. Email's got to be short and sweet. They got an email is designed to land one point. Now, if I got a negative point that I'm going to land, I will start out the email with, you're not going to like this. It's going to sound harsh. I'm going to warn people that something negative is coming. I'm going to then make my point. However I'm making my point, I will go back and probably s sprinkle in I'm sorry, I'm afraid, liberally preceding the points that they might be sensitive to. Then the real critical issue, be, you know, besides working on landing one point, the last impression is a lasting impression. The last impression seeds what's going to come next. I will end my email how most people start their emails. Most people would start this email saying like, you know, I think the world of you, things have gone really well in the past. We'd love to make a deal. I put that at the end. Cut and paste and put that at the end. The last impression is a lasting impression. It increases the likelihood that the next move will be made. So make your email short and sweet. Land one point. If there's a negative point to be land, start out by letting them know the bad news is coming land the point, finish positively. We negotiate via email all the time. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I was extremely disappointed in a video product that we'd gotten. And my email to the individual that I was very upset with said, this is going to sound harsh. Every single thing that you've been delivered has been 
I'm afraid it's been delivered in a standard that I'm sorry we cannot share it with anybody that we're trying to train. I'm asking myself not only why should we not pay you for what you've delivered, but why I shouldn't add demand all of my money back. My problem is I think the world of you personally, myself and my team, we've always enjoyed working with you. You're a decent human being, and I hope that 10 years from now we look back on a prosperous relationship. How do you want to proceed? Now, that part that I put at the end is what most people would have put at the beginning. But I let him know something really harsh was coming, and believe me, what followed was harsh. And I sprinkled in the I'm sorry's and I'm afraid's because I needed to land. I need him to hear me. And then I need him to know at the end, instead of finishing with what most people would have written, their last line would have been, I don't know why I'm not asking for all my money back. That's the way most people in those harsh emails. Last impression is a lasting impression. The words that I need to ring in his ears are, no matter what, I still value you as a human being. He emailed me back almost immediately offering to redo everything for free. And we worked it all out, and we treated him the entire way, although we were disappointed in the product, we valued him as a human being, and we still have a good relationship. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. That was so, so, so helpful. And um, I just have one other question that relates to that. So recently I pitched a premier platform for an art launch, and the response I got was very short, like, no, sorry, try again next year. Is there a way to negotiate backwards, I guess, after you receive that kind of no response? So I'd probably start out with something short and sweet, which is seems like you have a good reason for rejecting me. Now, you really need to know what's going on on the other side. It could be a variety of things. Not the least of which is whoever you have contact with has lost the ability to influence the outcome and they're embarrassed to tell you that. So to get them to be candid with their answers, you know, they have a good reason for saying that and their empathy is about the other side's perspective. Your recognition, you have a good reason for rejecting me is the best way for you to find out what's behind it so that then you can recalibrate. Maybe they're not even buying a product anymore. I mean, you, there's so many possibilities that are not linked to anything where there's a dissatisfaction with you personally. You've got to sort out if there's stuff that's external to the environment that just takes everything out of the game. So that's how I would start. An empathy statement, it seems like you have good reason for rejecting me, is the most likely way to get an answer. And that's how I would start. And then I would, however they respond, I would factor that into all of my moves forward from that point on. The last impression is a lasting impression. We can't emphasize this enough. 
And I told you before the the nice, wonderful, flowery stuff that you had that you wanted to start out with your uh, your email with before, and you're thinking, which is even if I'm sitting down to write an email, I'll find myself writing some wonderfully beautiful things as I'm working my way through the thought pattern for the email. I'll end up cutting and pasting that and putting it last. In 2008, I'm at a conference being held by the Gallup organization, which has been polling human beings about how they feel about stuff for like 8 billion years. The Gallup organization is the polling organization, and they are sitting on a mountain of human nature data. And one of the things that they shared with us, which triggered a lot of thoughts in my brain at the time, was people do not remember things how they happen. People do not remember things how they happen. Please allow me to repeat People do not remember things how they happen. They remember the most intense moment and the last thing. And with bad communication, the most intense moment is often the last thing. Or if there wasn't an intense moment, they remember the last thing. But human beings remember the last thing. The last impression is the lasting impression. Gallup tells us that. They are sitting on an Alexandria's library of information that backs that up. And it made me remember in the Chase Manhattan bank robbery hostage taking that I negotiated back in 19, whatever. We took over that negotiation when we started taking over how every conversation ended. Hugh McGowan, when he handed me the phone, Hugh McGowan was the commander of the NYPD's negotiation team. He said, you're letting him in the conversations. From now on, I want you to end every conversation, no matter what you end the conversation. We put an aspect of control back into a negotiation that was out of control by making sure we controlled the last impression by simply ending it. Flash that forward to the Tractor Man Siege, which is also in the book. One of my colleagues, Vince D'Alfonso, noticed Tractor Man Dwight Watson was hanging up abruptly on our negotiator and he was keeping us from establishing a relationship. And so what did we negotiate? Vince told the negotiator from the park police, from now on, as soon as Dwight gets back on the phone, actually not from now on, your next conversation, you get Dwight to promise to never end a conversation without saying goodbye. Again, this was a last impression issue. And she forced Dwight to terminate the conversation politely. And it put Dwight in a completely different mindset once we negotiated politeness in. The last impression is the lasting impression. And finally, I began to discuss this just a couple of years ago with Cindy Mori, who's Oprah's booker, still is, and has been her booker for over 19 years. And we're kicking it around. And she says, yeah, well, in the entertainment industry, it's usually in and a limo, out in a taxi. Once they've gotten what they want from you, they don't care how they treat you. But under Oprah, it's always been in and a limo, out in a limo. And Oprah and everybody on her staff has always been determined that no matter how it went, no matter how it goes in the interaction, no matter what led us up, people have to feel valued at the end. The last impression is a lasting impression. Oprah, 
with that philosophy has successfully dealt with the most difficult people on the planet. And you can't cite an argument that Oprah is in. And it's really easy to say, yeah, but it's Oprah and nobody's going to want to argue with Oprah. Now, Oprah has been in plenty of conversations and is, is taking people to the woodshed who are not used to being taken to the woodshed plenty of times. And Oprah and everybody that works for or anybody that's worked for over a length of time lives by the rule that people feel valued at the end. The last impression is a lasting impression. Your gut instinct is going to be to write something that's true and nice at the beginning of the email to open it. We are not advocating that principally. We're advocating an accusations audit at the beginning of the email. That doesn't mean that what you wrote at the beginning as a legitimate positive thing to say, you know, we'd love to have a long-term relationship with you. I'm writing you this email because I would love to work things out and we want to have a great relationship. That's unequivocally true. And it goes at the end of your email. If you're emailing someone to work something out, you in fact want to settle it amicably. You in fact want to have a long-term productive relationship. Those things are completely true. Put them at the end. Where most people screw up is the last thing they say is a parting shot. I mean, people work their way through an email, they get more and more angry as it goes through. And the last thing that they write is the worst thing that they could have could have written. And it is so common. It's stunning that people, we got an email from uh, a number of years ago from a company that we parted company with because they were half. And when the person who was the president sent me an email complaining about changes that we were making, the very last thing she wrote in the email was, you know, we got into this partnership hoping for the best. The last two words were some partnership. And I remember thinking like, how in the world do you end like that? Well, you end like that because that's what human beings do when they let their anger get out of control. And the last impression is a parting shot. We're not we're telling you that's a wrong way to do it. And we're not advocating the sandwich approach either, which is a positive and negative and a positive. If you notice, our opening move is the accusations order is the deactivation of the negatives. And the positive thing that you say at the end is the truth. It's not flowery nonsense. And if you're working something out via email, you in fact want a great long-term relationship. That is the truth. Do emails have tone? They can, they got a no, we got some yeses, and we got to always do. Yeah, that's more, we got a maybe over here, right? I think you were just trying to be funny. <laughs> emails, emails always have a tone, and they always take on the tone of the mood that the reader is in at the time which as a negotiator, you have no control over. The fact that they got up that morning, their kid got in trouble, they had to give their kid a spanking, and then their wife yelled at them, and then they got into an argument with their boss, then they sat down at the computer and read your email, and they were really pissed off in that moment, you had no control over that. And so, 
when it comes to email, it's not so much that these can't be used, but we like to drop in what we refer to as email softeners, which simply put are just I'm sorry's and I'm afraid's. And then our emails have always got to be short. You know, the other thing, and that's why, that's why I said it's tricky, because number one, email's got to be short, and sometimes your accusations are that there's 17 items. You might not necessarily want to list all 17 in the email, but you might want to use the email to drive them to the table so you can lay them out verbally. And then the second thing, as I mentioned earlier, is the tone. And the way you combat that is when I'm sorry, I'm afraid. No matter what mood you're in, I'm sorry pretty much always reads as I'm sorry. And so, I'm sorry I have to lay this at your feet. I'm afraid if this doesn't get solved, it's going to cause this problem. You probably think this is some sort of a money grab. You know, in an order like that. But you definitely want to drop in your I'm sorry as I'm afraid. I think who is um, getting more? Who wrote the, I can't think of the author. The Stuart Diamond, yes. Stuart Diamond, uh, Wharton professor, taught negotiation there for a long time. He's got a great podcast on, read, on, on sending emails. And he says, write them out and then read them back to yourself out loud in the worst possible voice you could imagine. And he says, don't be one of these people that's like, I can hear the voice in my head. I can just read the words. No, 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 no. Read it out loud because the process of hearing the words come out of your mouth and back into your ears is very important. And then rewrite your email. Rosalie brought up a really interesting question about, you know, going, going with straight iMessages and email kind of just based on what you were talking about. The short answer is yes. You can go straight iMessages and email. Now, the one thing to consider is if you're in a place relationship-wise with this other person or entity that they're not actually opening any of your emails, sending an email with an iMessage in the email body ain't going to get you anywhere because they ain't going to open a damn thing. Right? So the first thing is, right, in order for it to take effect, we got to know that they're opening our stuff. And so, yes, you can go with the iMessage. However, the example that I threw into the chat that basically starts with the subject line of it seems like I screwed this up, seems like we have caused irreparable damage. It seems like I have offended you, you know, greatly, whatever it is, right? At least put that in the subject line as the attention grabber. And then the follow-up of, you know, would it be impossible for us to sit down and hash this out, right? Is essentially what you want to put in the email body. If you get no response or you get a negative response to that based on where you are, then the next email is probably the one that includes the iMessage. Because the other thing is you've at least confirmed that they've opened and read it if they've said back like, no, we can't, or you're out of your mind, or whatever the case may be. At least have some confirmation that they're opening, and then maybe you go iMessage next. But since iMessage in general, whether verbally or through email, is a one-shot wonder, right? Think of your iMessage as you got one bullet. When you fire that bad boy, you want to make sure that it's as accurate and on target and has as much effectiveness as possible. And so we want to try to solve the problem with something else first. Usually it's going to be as simple as just a verbal identification. 
in the form of a summary or a label or an audit, right, to your points. And then the follow-up is probably the iMessage, right? If we're like, all right, well, the only thing I can do is fire my one 50 caliber bullet at you. That's all I got. That's my last resort. Then you go ahead and pull the trigger, but not until you've exhausted all of your options first. And and you're going to get to that point. You don't you don't need to rush into it, especially if you're using this with half people. You're going to get an opportunity to do it, which is a great thing about these half people, because they're not going to repeat with you anyway. So they are they are people there for to for you to bring your skill level up. Intuitively, we know it. We know we get much more accomplished with voice-to-voice -voice conversation, but yet we're afraid of offending. We're afraid of embarrassment. And so that that those are the two drivers that keep us away from going voice-to-voice. -voice. I'm continually amazed at, at, in industries where human contact is important, how reluctant people, I, I, I speak with real estate agents quite often, and I'm just amazed at how much they want to do outside of interacting with other people. And they want to send people videos and they want to send people text messages and they want to send people emails. Now, that's not to say you should not send an email to summarize a conversation that might be lengthy. That's wholly appropriate. What I'm talking about specifically is going back and forth via email, it's just counter, it's counterproductive. Um, negotiation instructor at the Wharton Business School at UPenn, Stuart Diamond said, if you're going to compose a long email, first of all, he suggests against it as, as well. General rule of thumb, if your email exceeds five sentences, it's probably too long. But even at the five sentence email, print it out, read it out loud in the harshest tone that you can think of, and then start sprinkling in email softeners. I'm sorry, and I'm afraid wherever they fit appropriately. But the general rule of thumb, don't let it go beyond five sentences. Delivery and syntax, that they're, they're basically the same thing talking about tone. In terms of a ratio that'll help you appreciate this more, just remember 738.55. My Arabian started talking about this ratio back in the 60s, early 70s at UCLA. 
he didn't mean this to be the be all end all for importance of the components of a message. He's just used that as a framework to outline that how you say something is five times more important than what you're actually saying. And so delivery and syntax being so closely related, you're talking about communication. They add up to 93%. 93% of the importance of a message is contained in how it's delivered. And so keep that in mind, your tone of voice. How are you delivering the message? We're going to talk about what tones of voices you should be in during um, a conversation where you're trying to influence someone else. We have three different negotiator personality types within the Black Swan Method, assertives, analysts, and accommodators. Each of those has a specific voice that they like to use. For the assertive, it's very aggressive. It's almost bully-like in the way that they deliver their message. That is a voice you should never be in if you're in a conversation where you're trying to influence other people. You should be in the accommodator's voice, which is friendly, approachable, amenable. During most of the conversation, when you get to that portion of the conversation where you want to state your goal and objective, draw your line in the sand, make your ask, then you'll switch to the late night FM DJ voice. The late night FM DJ voice is a voice that you use to deliberately slow the other person down. And you exaggerate the pronunciation on every single word when you're trying to drive home your point. What about, what about email? Does email have a tone? Does the actual black letters on a white screen the question that I have posted on this particular slide, does it have a tone? If I'm sending you an email, if you just got chewed out by your boss and you open my email, that is the emotion that you're going to apply to the email. Tone is so important to other people that they imagine it. Black letters on a white screen in and of themselves don't have a tone but you better believe that the recipient of your email is going to assign a tone to it. If, if, if you and I have a one-on-one -on -one relationship and, and I am your, your negotiation coach, I'm going to encourage you to stop trying to negotiate via email. You lose way too much data when you're trying to go back and forth. And then the other reason it doesn't make sense, it's why would you, why would you, it's, it's equivalent to laying out your next seven anticipated moves if you were playing chess over email and you put in your email, your next anticipated seven anticipated moves and you expect the other side to sit there and take it. No, they're not going to further. They're going to pick out when you write one of those voluminous emails, they're going to pick out 
the one or two things in that email that they hate. And that's all they're going to fixate on. You may have 10 brilliant points. Point number 11 is the one that they are going to fixate on. And that's all that's going to drive their response. So going forward, your email should be used to drive them to a voice to voice conversation for the reasons that I just laid out. You just lose too much. And I'm continually amazed that people are so reluctant to to engage the other side voice to voice that they want to do everything by text, everything by email. At the end of the day, the email and the text should be used to drive them to a phone call or or to a Zoom call. Number one, is now a bad time to talk? Now, we're going to give you several no-oriented questions in a row because they're awesome and they help get you an advantage right away. But one of the things I'm going to underscore on these no-oriented questions is the issue of decision fatigue. Now look, everybody's got the same problem. We all suffer from decision fatigue. You suffer from decision fatigue. What does that mean? What that means is there are only so many decisions you can make in a given day. There are only so many decisions any human being can make in a given day. That's one of the reasons why if you're in prison and you come up for parole, you want to come up for parole in the morning instead of the afternoon. Because in the afternoon, they're going to give you no decision. They're not going to be able to make a decision. You're more likely to stay in jail. This is not parole and parole board issues. This is human nature issues. There are only so many decisions. There are only so much gas anybody has in a tank to make decisions on a given day. And that's going to be a result of, you know, how much sleep they got the night before, what, uh, what their diet is, what they ate that day, whether or not they ate carbs, where they are in their circadian rhythm. Everybody hits a circadian low roughly about 3 a.m. and about 3 p.m. Just part of being a human being. Decision fatigue issues. However, we found in a black swan group through practice and application that people are capable of saying no at pretty much any time of the day. I had an intern a number of years ago, only wanted to ask me how and what questions because he was horrified about making a mistake. Middle of the afternoon, he'd be asking me how and what questions, and I just didn't have the gas in the tank to answer him to be able to engage in that deep thinking, as Danny Kahneman would say. So consequently, I'd say like, I don't know, don't bother me, leave me alone, instead of giving him an answer. Finally, I said, look, don't ever ask me a question after 1 o'clock in the afternoon where the answer isn't no, because I could say no and I can think through the next several steps and give them guidance. We've used this on a regular basis. You got to get into practice using no-oriented questions. And number one is the flip side of the most common thing you're saying on a regular basis, which is wrong. Actually, it's not that it's wrong. It's just not great. Is have you got a few minutes to talk? Now, I know you mean that respectfully. And we're not throwing respect out the window here. The Black Swan Method is actually extremely respectful. Is now a bad time to talk? Test drive it. Use it on a regular basis. Build your no-oriented questions, mental synapses, and 
experiment with the sort of answers that you get. You're going to like them. And as a side note, I would say to you, anybody that would say yes to that, do you really want to talk to them then, at that moment, when they've actually said yes to that? No, you don't. All right, number two, is it a ridiculous idea? Use this in place of, is it a good idea, for all the same reasons that I just gave you. you got to get your practice in. Number three, are you against XYZ, whatever it may be, instead of, are you in favor of? Again, you've got to use this to get into practice. We had a woman at a in a uh, hospital services company once who was a little skeptical of our no-oriented questions approach, walked out of the room during the training and reached out to the head nurse in a hospital about a program that she'd been trying to get the head nurse to accept that the head nurse had been rejecting. Instead of saying, do you want to agree or would you like to do this? She said, are you against? And then asked the question. The head nurse immediately said no. They came to an agreement and they implemented the program. She came walking back in the room and said, you guys are not going to believe what just happened. I've been trying to get agreement on this for weeks. And I switched from a yes question to a no question and cut the deal. Got to get your reps in. Number four, have you given up on X, whatever that X may be? This is context driven. What's the context? It has to be something they've already started on. Otherwise, you're using a black swan skill as a manipulative trap, which is not what we advise. They have to have already started on this. Now, when do you use this? You use this when they are ghosting you. They've gone silent on you. This will restart your conversation 999 times out of 1,000. Don't let the fact that it stops one in 1,000 times stop you, scare you. Nothing works all the time. This works more than anything else does. And what makes it work? Well, you got to keep this in mind. Your system is perfectly designed to give you the outcome you've obtained. If they've gone silent on you, you've been doing something to contribute to them going silent on you. You've probably been explaining. You've probably been pitching. You've probably been educating. Got to stop all these things. Restart the conversation with this one shot restart. And then your very next move is you got to get a TR out of them. What's a TR? That's right. How do you get a TR? How do you get a that's right? You've got to summarize their perspective, particularly their reservations, their reasons for not doing it, what they're up against, the difficulty of what they might be facing, and then go dead silent. You do not go, but here's why those aren't good reasons you got to go dead silent and get a that's right out of them. If you can't get a that's right out of them at that point, you've got to say, it sounds like I've left something out. That's a bonus response for you to use here, which is not on our top 10 list, but helps you get farther in your conversations. Number five, and we're going to get into the category here with letting out know a little at a time. A person that 
uh, I consider a good friend and I'm really impressed with Ned Coletti, former GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers. We were sitting around talking about negotiation one time. Ned is a phenomenal negotiator and he told me the phrase, I like to let out know a little at a time. This is a great attitude. You do not want to let people get blindsided by you suddenly saying no. You've got to let it out a little at a time. And the first way of letting out no a little at a time in a highly collaborative way is, how am I supposed to do that? Now, many of you know this is one of the most famous lines with the Black Swan Method, and it's pretty much the opening story in the book Never Split the Difference. How am I supposed to do that? And we originally conceived of this as a way to passively say no, even passively, aggressively, against the throat-cutting negotiators that are really trying to kick your backside. And what it is in many other ways is, it's an implementation question. How questions are about implementation. It's designed to let the other side realize that there's some implementation issues here. This also falls in the category of what Brandon Voss has labeled forced empathy. It forces the other side to take a good, empathic look at your situation. We use empathy because it works, and we use empathy because we want to get it in return. You're going to use empathy because it works, and you're going to use empathy because you want it in return. And how am I supposed to do that is a great starting point for that. Now, what happens if they turn around and say, well, that's your problem. They put it right back on you, which will happen occasionally. Once had a woman say, I used how am I supposed to do that, and it didn't work because they shot back right at me and told me how I was supposed to do that. Well, number one, the fact is it's not that it didn't work. The fact is, is that it's giving you a better, clearer picture of the situation. They throw it right back on you. They're telling you they're not interested in showing you any empathy. That's an interesting clue that maybe you don't want to do business with them. Subscribe to the Black Swan Group's negotiation newsletter, which is free. It doesn't cost you anything. I had a colleague at the FBI that used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. Here's how you subscribe to The Edge if you're in the United States. Send a text to, the number is 33777, that's 33777. The text message that you send is Black Swan Method, Black Swan Method 233777. Comes to your email inbox on Tuesday mornings when you're ready to rock and roll and get out. And in the model of letting out no a little at a time, here's the next no that you let out, which is number six on our list, and it is... Your offer is very generous. I'm afraid that just doesn't work for me. Now, here's the beauty aspects of this. You mentioned generous. You want to encourage generosity on their part. That's a good thing for you to throw into this statement. Second part, it just doesn't work for me. That removes the problem of external criteria. Now, my academic brothers and sisters like to talk about, well, let's agree on an external criteria. Why should you agree to the external criteria? Maybe the external criteria is okay and appropriate in a neutral situation or in situations other than yours. Well, why should external criteria apply to you? In many cases, it doesn't. You want to remove 
an agreement on external criteria from the conversation because they're only going to agree to external criteria that works against you and you don't want to put yourself in that corner. This is a great way to come back with a much stronger no. One of the students in our class at Georgetown said they use that phrase, your offer is very generous, but I'm sorry it just doesn't work for us. And he said the people on the other side of the table looked at each other and then looked back at him and said, you're right, it is high. Now that's an interesting response because you want to have an impact on what you say what you say and what they hear. You want them to get across in their brain. The stuff doesn't work. There's a pretty good chance it's too high. You don't want them to feel backed into a corner when you're letting out Noah a little at a time. And this is a great way to do that. Don't back people into a corner. They will disagree even when it's not in their interest to disagree. Taking away their autonomy is a bad idea, and that's what happens when you back people into a corner. Now, number seven. This is another counterintuitive response, and you use it for when somebody calls you and says, how are you today? Instead of saying, fine, you know, how are you? Or, uh, my back hurts. Or, it's a wonderful day. When they're calling you and saying, how are you today? What are they really trying to find out? Well, they're really trying to find out, are you in a mental place to talk about what I want to talk about? So here's how you short circuit this conversation in a way that builds rapport, that they appreciate, gathers information, and preserves your most precious commodity and theirs, which is time. It sounds like you've got a place you want to start. They are going to love this. Of course they have a place they want to start. They've thought about it before they called you. Now every now and then, somebody's going to say to you, Yeah, I do have a place I want to start, but I really want to know how are you today. Cool. Then engage in the conversation. And then you can get back to the place they wanted to start. Everybody wins. Number eight, another counterintuitive response. And this is how you should respond to questions when you are asked a question. So the first way to respond to questions, and number eight on our list is, what makes you ask? Just like that. Now, when somebody asks you a question, what's more important is the question behind the question. What makes you ask? For two reasons. Number one, most people are not good at asking questions. That question may be a result of a committee decision. You know uh, how good a committee is? Well, let me give you an example. A giraffe is a horse designed by a committee. So committee decision questions are going to be off. On number two, what's really driving at what make them ask is far more important than what they actually asked. So you got to find out, and this is not disrespectful, they're going to be happy to tell you. And if they're not, well, that tells you a lot about them too. And how can you respond if they say, just answer the question? Your response is, I want to make sure that I 
answer what you're really asking me. I'm just trying to dial in to what you're really after. More respect. If they don't like respect from you, that tells you a lot about them and whether or not you should continue to be in business with them. Now, what happens if it's the middle of the afternoon, they're decision fatigued, they're having trouble coming up with an answer, it's too in-depth. The alternate to great calibrated questions and what makes you ask is a calibrated question. You want to ask an alternative label, an asking label, if you will. And so number nine on our list is the alternative to what makes you ask. And that is, it seems like you have a good reason for asking that. Or, it seems like you have a good reason for asking that. I gave you both inflections there. Make sure you shut the front door right after you use that label. What does that mean? Go silent. Count thousands to yourself if you have to. Let them break the silence. You won't get past three. Be prepared to count to ten. And wait. Respectfully. This is a respectful dynamic and respect is one of your best choices. Finally, number 10. On the top 10 list of black swan negotiation bullets. You're going to use this when the other side is failing to perform. When they're not living up to an agreement. What do you say? It seems like you have a reason for not doing and then whatever it is that they didn't do, X, Y, perform, finish the contract, finish the work, call me back. They're going to have a reason. They're probably afraid to tell you. This is the best way to re-engage a collaborative approach to whatever the problem is so that they feel safe and respected always the keys to a long-term relationship. This video is about labels, the ultimate negotiation tool. Sometimes we think of it as the ultimate MacGyver tool. What makes it a MacGyver tool? Well, a MacGyver tool is really simple and incredibly effective, ridiculously effective. To do your labels right, you gotta keep them simple. Stick to the format. It seems like, it sounds like, it looks like. You seem, you sound, you look. We have a great negotiator that loves to say it feels like. Stick to that simple format. We're intentionally leaving the word I out. I is a thought interrupter, a pattern interrupter. When you use the word I, it draws attention to yourself. It interrupts the other side's thinking. And you're using labels to gather information. We know from negotiation that you add this to gather information. A crazy thing is, asking questions is not always the best way to gather information. Labels work well more of the time than asking questions do. Labels trigger stream of consciousness reactions. You might say to somebody, what are you thinking about this? You might label them instead and say, seems like you're giving this a lot of thought. Or it seems like you're thinking about something here. Or... It seems like you saw some things you like. Either one of those is going to trigger a much more unvarnished flow of thoughts from the other side. One of the people who's really learned this stuff and is doing a great job of applying this in a real estate area calls it unlocking the floodgates of truth talk. 
happens to be a woman that's applying this and seeing the insights and not the least bit surprising because women have a tendency to pick this stuff up faster than men do. It doesn't mean men can't be great at it also, just that for whatever reason, women seem to get a head start on understanding this and applying it really quickly. This is emotional intelligence-based negotiation. One of the crazy things about this is that when Brandon and I brought these hostage negotiation techniques out of hostage negotiation into the business world, we didn't think labels were that big of a deal. I can tell you now that we both use them so much that we can work our way entirely through a negotiation only using labels. When you get good at them, you respect their simplicity and you apply them, you can use them all over the place. One of the main things that makes labels incredibly versatile is the fact that all three types like them a lot. We've done a lot of polling. We've got a lot of reason to believe that the world pretty much breaks up into three types, assertives, analysts, and accommodators, across the board, regardless of gender or ethnicity. We probably polled at least 2,000 people in this regard. We've got a fair amount of data. And in polling all these people, and in different classes where we've talked, we frequently run exercises where we ask them, of the nine negotiation skills, which skills would you most prefer your counterpart use with you in order to make a great deal with you? All three types pick labels as number one or number two. So while you're still trying to get a feel for the other side and draw a beat on what type they are, labels will always be your highest percentage shot at the very beginning when you're proceeding. And then if you find out that they resonate really well with labels, you just simply stick to them. It's your safest bet. And the way you go from being barely good enough to get by to being a superstar is just by increasing your odds a little bit at a time. Labels increase your odds. Get good at them. Practice them simply. Practice every day. Get your reps in. And they will serve you well. How much practice should you get in? An hour a day. Make an hour label hour. Label at noon. Label over lunch. Label from 7 to 8 every day. Whatever time it is. Get your practice in. Make a cheat sheet of labels. Keep it by your phone. Your cheat sheets should especially include labels of negative dynamics. Fill in a blank. It seems like you hate X. It seems like you dislike X. It seems like X is a problem for you. Have those fill in a blank labels by your phone. Have them ready. They will serve you well. Where are we in 2021? You're already using a black swan method. A number, a number of faces and names I, I've seen on uh, in 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 our gallery here, the Rogues Gallery of Black Swans. You're already using a black swan method. You are somewhere in one of three stages: shu ha ori. Shu is when you're learning, and these are martial arts terms. Some of you may already be familiar with these. But when you're learning this or you're learning as different aspects of the approach at the very beginning, we're going to ask you to do it. And we've been asking you to do it word for word, exactly as we've said, word for word, exactly down to the word. The old Karate Kid movie, wax on, wax off. Now, ha, after you've done enough repetitions, 
63 to 67 on a specific word for word, you begin to branch out and understand. Most of you are already part of the community. You're going to start to hear things that other people in the community say that you're going to learn from. Your understanding expands. You don't feel constrained anymore by doing it word for word. You actually feel a sense of freedom. And every now and then you ad-lib a little bit. And then as the reps continue and you continue to branch out and understand, you begin to create your own original rules for the same knowledge. And you go from learning from the community to contributing to the community, to saying things that other people are going to find insightful, which is exactly where we got the rule of gathering data with your eyes. Because when we did one of our challenges recently, Brandon and I were interviewing a couple of people on a call in the middle of the challenge about how far they've gone in their journey on a black swan method and the fact that they're practicing with each other and it's becoming something that they actually enjoy doing. They enjoy negotiations just for the sake of the negotiations. And one of the guys threw out the, the phrase, gather data with your eyes. And I went like, holy cow, I love that. I never heard that before. I said, well, you know, that's, that's gorgeous. Where'd you come up with that? He goes, well, ah, you, you guys probably said it somewhere along the line. Well, I, I don't think so. Like maybe Brandon said that to him at one point in time. But I don't remember hearing that before. That's where you guys can get to if you look at this, first of all, as a perishable skill. And secondly, the joyful application of these skills. Amber, if you could unmute. There you go. Okay. Hi. Hi. I'm very pleased to meet you. Um, I have a couple of questions. Um, So practically, as a survivor of narcissistic abuse, bullying, and so many other forms of abuse I don't need to be getting into right now. Uh, I'm probably going to come across like a negative toad here. Uh, I'm finding it kind of hard to be using the accusations audits in a way that doesn't come across too apologetic. And, okay, that's the first part. And the second part is... I do love using accusations audits as a, I call it narc bait. Like I throw out a perceived weakness. Uh, For example, one of my favorite ones is, you probably think I'm stupid. Um, Because that gets narcissists to reveal themselves pretty quickly. Because like the ones who immediately jump on that, they're like a sharks who smell blood. I already know who I'm dealing with. And I usually Mm -hmm. can just like... Avoid, avoid, like, no, decide how to how to act with that person. However, I'm finding that the, the the real problem I'm having is not becoming too apologetic, where you turn into a doormat. Right. So I hear this often from women, and in our Women's Power Hour that we do every other month, I have a lot of people that say to me, you know, I don't want to apologize. I don't want to say I'm sorry. Your tone of voice when you say that, I'm sorry, really means everything. Um, And by the way, you used a nice accusations audit there at the beginning when you said, I'm probably going to be seen as a whatever you said. Um, That's a good accusations audit. When you said that, 
I immediately noticed your tone and the way your voice intonation went when you said that, you were like, I'm probably going to be seen. You kind of did it like that. Amend that tone just a little bit and just say, I'm probably going to be, just speak up and own it. Um, so when you say, I'm sorry, instead of saying, I'm sorry, with your tone kind of going down and like, I'm defeated, I'm, you know, I'm below, I'm less than, speak up when you say that. I'm sorry, and let it go like that. Um, so your tone really has everything to do with controlling how people take an apology from you. And I understand exactly what you're saying with bullying behavior and things like that. Just practice um, sitting up straight, like I said before, with your tone of voice, put your chin up and then say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, you know, go forward from there. It, it, it does make a big difference. And an apology, an apology, yes, people say an apology should be heartfelt and things like that. When you're when you've done something that you need to apologize for, then by all means, do that heartfelt, I'm really sorry, apology. But if you're putting it out there to kind of introduce an accusations audit, you want to speak up about it a little bit more, raise your chin and speak out uh, a little bit prouder about it, I guess is the way I'm putting it, if that makes right. any sense. So if I say, I'm sorry, I'm probably going to come across like a negative toad right now. Yes, that was really good. Cool, was really thank good. you. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense then? I'm so happy that helps. Yeah, I noticed that right yes. off the bat when you said that, Amber. Yep, I did. <laughs> I changed my posture. Like, I'm, I'm kind of crouched over here because I'm hosting a Zoom call for other people to be listening in who have not been approved by the app yet and asking the questions. That's what I did yesterday as well. So I'm kind of crouched over because it's kind of difficult from the phone to the to the call. And right. <laughs> so I changed I my it. posture when you said that. And yes, it really did make all the difference. It does make so, a difference. So I, I want to thank you also for sharing this through Zoom so other people can hear it. That's amazing. That's just thank you so much for doing that. And yes, posture does have a, a, a great, great big effect on your tone. So anyone who's having tone issues, if you really practice that posture, it does make a difference. Right. Thank you so much. Certainly. <laughs> Sandy, that is some awesome stuff. Like I tell you, I need to listen to you teach more. I'm <laughs> tweeting out these pearls of wisdom that you were sharing as we're speaking. This is really cool. I'm having the best. Awesome. Thank you.